everyone to As For Me and My House Season 2. Thanks for joining us in your homes, around your tables, or in your small groups in our church-wide study, Promises Kept, the whole story of the Bible. This is part one of chapter six, Future Beyond Judgment. On the timeline of our Bible overview, we're at the point of the prophets in the Old Testament. Now, Lauren, who were the prophets? Well, the prophets ministered during the reign of the kings, and the prophets had a special job to speak God's word to the people. It was a special job, but a hard job, as nobody wanted to hear the warnings and messages from God, especially when it spoke of judgment. So yes, they, uh, the prophets, they spoke of judgment for sin, but they also had a flip side. They spoke of judgment and then often of hope, kind of like a coin with two sides, condemnation and salvation, or destruction and restoration. So here's what has led, has led up to the prophets. Uh, here's our story so far. In God's land, God's people kept rebelling. And so they kept being invaded by enemies instead of enjoying God's blessing. God gave them judges or leaders to rescue them. But then more recent in our study, God gave a new king, David, who led the people into obedience and into blessing. But after David died, David's son Solomon worshipped other gods, not the true God. Their sin brought God's judgment, which, when Solomon died, was the kingdom being split in two, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. From then on, most kings were like Solomon, and the people increasingly rejected God and his ways. So enter the prophets. God raised up and spoke through his prophets to these rebellious kings and people. And there were dozens of them, and the messages of of 16 of them are included in our Bibles. Now, they were all different, but in their own way, they were basically singing the same song, Judgment and Hope. And the prophet that we are looking at today is Amos. Maybe not so famous Amos, uh, a man from Judah who spoke God's words to Israel around 750 BC. And in the book named after him, as in all the prophets, we see four major sins that God is calling his people to repent of. Idolatry, not loving God first. Social injustice, not loving others. Sexual immorality, a form of self-worship. And religious ritualism, going through the motions, even when hearts are not there. Let's see which of these four Amos is speaking of in chapter 8, starting in verse 4. Hear this, you who trample on the needy, and bring the poor of the land to an end. Well, here it's clear that there was uh, social injustice. Yeah, not only a lack of concern for the needy, but an act of trampling on the needy for selfish gain. Let's keep reading in verse 5, saying, When will the new moon be over, that we may sell grain in the Sabbath, that we may offer wheat for sale? that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances. And clearly here we see that Israel's heart was not to obey God's laws. They were religious. They celebrated all the right holidays, including the new moon, the beginning of the new month. But their heart was not to worship God. They went through the rituals of religion, but cared little about it. What they truly cared about, well, what was that? Well, making money. They looked at God's laws as holding them back from doing what they really wanted to do, which wasn't even just making money from people. It was actually even taking advantage of them. Essentially, those false balances there at the end of verse 5, or those scales, what would happen is a cheating merchant would cheat his customers by giving them less than what they asked for and asking them to pay more than they should. So instead of the holy days being a chance to honor God and love God and worship God, The holy days just got in the way of their business of taking advantage of the poor. So through the prophet Amos, the Lord singled singled out here these two sins. And that was the sins of injustice and ritualism. They were ripping off the poor. 
And the Sabbath was something that they just tolerated more than observed. It was just something to kind of get through so that they could get back to cheating their neighbors. Now, look, we don't really deal with uh, ephahs or shekels, but we do deal with money. And it raises the issue of our own integrity, how we handle uh, finances. And it raises the, the issue of sincerity. If we love the worship of God, or if we simply tolerate it because it's perhaps the cultural thing to do, the Christian thing to do, or even the thing that our family raised me to do. So this raises questions of our integrity. Do we practice it? And sincerity, do we have it in our worship? Right. Through the prophet Amos, God was revealing their sin. And I think the application for us is clear. God sees our sin. He knows our sin. But we must still come to him and confess it to him. Take a moment and just think of this. If we were to assess our hearts right now, what would we find? Would we be guilty of the same religious ritualism that was so common in Amos's day? Would we find ourselves going through the motions with hearts that are not fully worshiping the Lord in spirit and in truth, but rather preoccupied with other things? Would we find that we honor God with our lips while our hearts are cold and distant? If so, we must repent. This is no small sin. This is a sin that led Israel into captivity. This is a sin that still grieves God's heart today. His people are made to praise him from a pure heart. We were made to glorify God and enjoy him forever, not to play church. Let us seek a true, authentic relationship with the Lord and pure hearts that seek him in truth. So Amos chapter 8 shows us their sins. But Amos chapter 8 not only shows us their sins, it also shows us how seriously God takes people's sins. There is always a consequence for sin. And here God says that because of all of this, he will bring mourning and weeping. He will be turning their songs into songs of lamentation. That's verse 10. And then in verse 11, here now the Lord is specific in what he was going to bring. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. So a famine. But what kind of famine? Not bread and not of water. Yeah, Amos warns of an even worse disaster. Because God's people had not listened to the warnings of the prophets, the Lord promised to send a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. Yeah, so notice carefully the nature of this famine. It is not a lack of God's word, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. The condition described is that of being deaf to the words of the Lord, not missing the opportunity for them. And what really this is saying is this is a problem with the hearer and not the preacher. So here it is not a case of God withholding his revelation, but of the people being in such a state that they do not see it and they do not hear the words. Wow. This famine from hearing the word of the Lord is a big deal. I mean, think about it. The word is our life. It is our bread. It was their bread and they didn't know it. So God would send a famine of hearing his word. They would starve from the living food they're ears would become dull and they would no longer hear the life-giving words of God that can save their souls. This would be the greatest judgment. The word provides hope for us in our darkest times and there would be no hope, no words of encouragement, no words of exhortation to repentance. It was too late. And what this is, is this is a judgment of God. Now remember that this famine, this curse, it, it simply continues the trajectory that the people were already on. They had not wanted to listen to the message of the prophets, so the Lord now is helping them along in that. They suppress the truth and reject God's word, and so God gives them what they ask for. 
Now, doesn't this just kind of even make us think of our day? Definitely. And, and how we should really assess our hearts and ask ourselves if the Word of God is really making a difference in our lives. If we're reading the Word or listening to sermons or getting teaching and we leave it unchanged, unchallenged, unconvicted, I think we're in really dangerous territory. We might just be experiencing this famine. Yeah, and I think in our culture with uh, you know smartphone distractions and technology everywhere and all the busyness around us, our attention is mm-hmm. divided. Mm-hmm. And if our attention is divided, I mean, well, how can our hearts really receive the word? In all honesty, it, it can't. We need undivided attention to the word of God if we want to truly hear it. We need heart preparation so that we can actually receive it. Right. And just as there was a famine then, there will be a famine at the end of time, a famine of hearing the Bible, of hearing God's mm-hmm. word. Mm-hmm. This is from 2 Timothy 4.3. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears so that they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Did you hear that first part? The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. They don't want to hear the word of God. Now, we might be tempted to think that, you know, since there are, are, are tens of thousands of books that are teaching God's word, and even countless uh, radio, broadca- uh, radio broadcasts or even podcasts such, as, such mm-hmm. as this, that there certainly is not a famine of teaching or preaching today. But when we read this passage carefully, we notice that Amos, again, he's not saying a famine of preaching or teaching of the word but a famine of hearing and heeding the word. Mm, This is an unusual curse. It's not like a physical famine, which everyone recognizes as a tragedy. Most of those who are struck by this famine will probably not recognize that it is a true calamity. Yeah, and isn't it true that a famine of hearing the truth will probably seem uh, to many people like a relief because there's no voice that's calling them into account or prompting them to think about eternity. Right, but this is tragic, and the text shows the first victims of this famine. They are young. Verse 13 says, In that day the lovely virgins and the young men shall faint for thirst. The young, and uh, they are the most susceptible. And and here again, we see this danger that we've seen before in our study, this danger of, of, of parents failing to provide a solid foundation of God's truth. Uh, The young only know what the older generation has taught them. And you know, with anything that's remotely Christian now being banished from uh, public schools and colleges and universities, and and of course, even ridiculed in the media, and with so many churches uh, amazingly, increasingly neglecting the word of God, it's the youth. The, The youth are being supplied with a very weak or non-existent diet of truth. And so what we have now is an entire generation that is Uh, at risk of falling for the line that there is no absolute truth, that everyone's opinion is valid, unless that opinion is biblical, and that the only modern sin these days is to judge. And all of these forms of idolatry are flourishing. Why? Because God's words are not being heard and something else has taken their place. Mm. Amos 8.14 describes those who are so adamantly committed to their idolatry who are so spiritually sick for malnourishment of taking in the word that they will fall and never rise again. And so the life of Israel's northern kingdom, what we're reading here in Amos is that it's at its end. That's what's being told to us. This is their judgment. And there is, again, judgment for sin. Mm -hmm. But, okay, but the Lord, 
The Lord also raised up these prophets to pronounce hope. Praise the Lord. Here's the flip side of the coin. God still has a future hope for his people. And it's to this now that we turn in Amos chapter 9. Amos 9, 11 to 15, it records this final vision from Amos of restoration. It's pointing to a day when God's covenant people, having been exiled into pagan lands to serve pagan peoples, that was their judgment, they would see their fortunes reversed. Uh, Amos 9, 11, in that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. Here, God promises to restore David's royal line, and this is fulfilled in the Messiah, in Jesus Christ, who is the tabernacle of David. Right, that's so amazing. Speaking of the hope for all Israel, and as we'll soon see the world that comes through Jesus, who comes through the line of David. And see how this promise continues to unfold. Notice what's different for Israel in this restoration project. Uh, as we look at verse 12, there will be Gentiles who are saved. Mm-hmm. Verse 12, that they may possess the remnant of Edom. That's a foreign nation. And, and all the nations who are called by my name declares the Lord who does this. I mean, how many of you here listening today are, are believers but are not Jewish? And this verse here, verse 12, is one of the scriptures that showed that you could be saved. And so by this inclusion, Amos makes the Uh, the expansiveness of God's grace and our mission clear. Uh, Here now is our happy privilege to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth that God will claim his grace for his glory. Then we get a picture of plenty and abundance in Christ. Verse 13, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. Wow, this is a glorious picture of the world working for humans rather than against them. It's a reversal of Genesis 3, a beautiful reversal of the curse. Listen again, the days are coming, get ready, there's hope. It looks like the plowman catching up to the reaper, the treader of grapes catching up to him who sows the seed. God's blessing and restoration would be so amazing, it would come so quickly, and so eager is the land to grow and produce fruit. And then the blessings come from unexpected places and with great quality. The mountains drip with sweet wine. Normally, grapevines aren't known to grow well on mountains and high places, but in these days, God would bring unexpected blessing to unexpected places, and it would be abundant. The hills would flow with it. God's blessing and restoration would be amazingly fruitful and would fill his people's hearts with a joyful gladness for the abundance of his blessings. And what is this talking about? Well, I believe it's talking about the spiritual blessings that are in Christ today and through the coming of his kingdom on earth. You know, his kingdom is now and not yet. So we experience great blessing now, but we'll know even more into eternity. Yeah, and then verse 15 points to eternity. Verse 15, I will plant them on their land. And they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given to them, says the Lord your God. Uh, This is an unbelievably encouraging promise. Mm. Uh, Here we have a gracious promise that a time would come where God's people would be planted in the land, in their land, never Mm. to be uprooted Mm. again. And so this is the new Jerusalem. But ultimately, this is speaking about the kingdom that Jesus sets up after he returns. And so there is much hope in this promise. Right. And this reminds me of a story from Mount St. Helens, which is close to where I grew up. 
You know, when Mount St. Helens erupted in 1980, it covered the surrounding area with a layer of ash that was several hundred feet deep. And the hot ash and lava that spewed from the mountain destroyed all plant and animal life, leaving behind a landscape that resembled the moon. Yet 19 years later, an amazing transformation had begun to take place. Birds, grass, elk, and even frogs had all begun to flourish there again. The mountainside, once dead, had come back to life. I actually got to visit, visit this. Uh, the prophet Amos closes his book on a note of hope, describing a similar rebirth for the nation of Israel. God had promised to judge his people, but he did not intend to destroy them. In the future, he would restore David's fallen tent. He would repair its broken places. He would restore its ruins and build it as it used to be. And so we have judgment, and then we have hope. And it asks the questions to us. Is God serious about your sin? Mm. Well, absolutely. Uh, Does God want you to stop your sin? Absolutely. Does God want to forgive you and give you eternal life? Absolutely. Mm. But then this other question, how is this so? Well, someday, someday somebody would be coming. This is what Amos was pointing to. Somebody would come that, would, uh, that could come and make up for this mess that Israel had created and that we've all created in our sin. Mm-hmm. And this someone would pay the penalty for their wrong and our wrongdoing, and he would make a way for us uh, to live in God's presence and to never be cast out again. This someone, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. We will look at the fulfillment of this promise more closely next week in part two. But let's not miss this great truth uh, that all of this is what? It's due to God's grace. All of this restoration is by God's grace. To God's glory alone does this happen. Verse 12, all of this declares the Lord who does this. It's the Lord who does this. And so it's all sheer grace. Grace is available. Hope is available. Mm -hmm. um, And being part of God's restoration now and blessing for eternity, it's all available by God's grace alone, in Christ alone. And I, and I trust that you have put your faith in Christ alone to be safe and secure for a blessed future that is beyond judgment. Thanks for joining us today. This podcast comes out every second Friday. Join us again in two weeks as we continue in our study through Promises Kept, the whole story of the Bible. We will be diving into the second half of chapter six, Future Beyond Judgment. May the Lord bless you in Christ. See you next time.